long time ago. <laughs> I'm getting to be an old woman. And I think like most old women, you have to reflect at some point. I wrote a book called Gemini, sort of to bring people up to date, at least on what I think I am, which is not quite, I'm sure, the whole truth. It never is. No reason I should be any different. I got my fantasies. So I wanted, I wanted to read a part of the essay Gemini from the book Gemini, trying to deal with us. But if black men ever would decide to define a black man in black terms, I think they would have different expectations of us as women. I went to the opening of an African exhibit at the Brooklyn Museum and noticed only about a dozen black men in the crowd of at least 200 people. And I thought to myself, how odd, no black men. Then I looked at the exhibit piece by piece and began to think I understood something. There was a beautiful door from the Congo. And looking at that door, I saw a man, a woman, several children in the yard, and this white man saying, your door is an excellent example of the Kashana people's art, and I must take it back to Amsterdam. And this beautiful African, barefoot, with perhaps an earring in his left ear, replies, but this door is the door to my house, and it is not for sale. And the woman, sensing something, stops the grinding of grain and begins gathering the children around her, while the white man goes on with, I must have the door, the museum needs it, and I can make 50 dinars on it. And the African rises to his full height on his long, light legs, tribal markings dancing slightly on his face, eyes clear and hard, saying, my family needs this door. It is mine. My father left it to me as his father did him. You may not have it. It is not for sale. And the cracker turns in a rage to leave. Then two, perhaps three days later, later the missionary comes up saying, my son, your door is needed in a great country far away from here. You... <laughs> You will be blessed by our Heavenly Father if you give your door to the merchant. And this magnificent African, stooping by his doorway, playing with one of his children, shakes his head. I would be cursed by my ancestors. Go now, go away, and leave us in peace. Then in the night, the soldiers come with the guns. The African responds with a spear. The fire acts from the barrel. The woman screams. The children scatter, asking, what is the matter? The man is stretched out in a pool of dark, murky liquid, and the door is taken down hoisted upon the shoulders of the black mercenaries, walked to the sea and freighted back to Amsterdam so that it can be borrowed by the United States of America to show, the peop to show how the people in Kashana lived in 1582. And I began to understand why so few black men had come, because it was not a door at all, but dead ancestors murdered in their homes that they would see. Not a statue from Nigeria, but a raped woman, a slit throat, a burned village. And even as I saw that, I knew I would never understand the reality of being a black man. Men grow beards to protect the throat, have hair on their chest to protect the heart, have afros to cushion the head blows. And these, can, and these things become aesthetically acceptable, if not preferable, but they always have their groundings in survival. My man and I can walk down the street together, and if some guy says something out of the way to me, it's an insult. To him, it could be his life. I can walk away from words and gestures and still be a woman. He cannot and still be a man. So little of a black man's existent re existence relies on his acts. His women, mothers, sisters, lovers control his life, and generally so irresponsibly that it can be frightening. And sometimes black women aren't very nice for a lot of reasons. And sometimes we use our power against him for a lot of reasons. And I think some of the hostility is real and must be related to as such. We're angry and so are they, but it's only when we admit it that we can get anywhere. I don't think a woman cares where she walks if you let her walk with you. And I don't think a man cares that a woman talks if, she, if she'll talk to him. And if we really understand, we are born men and women, and it's our choice whether or not we stay that way, I think a lot will change. If now isn't a good time for the truth, I don't see when we're going to get to it, because I don't want my son to be a warrior. 
or to go to some school where some insensitive teacher asks him why I'm not married, or where some cracker thinks he can run my son down anytime, any kind of way he pleases. We need some happiness in our lives, some hope, some love. I didn't have a baby to see him be cannon fodder. Cannon fodder. Something more must be decided. If it's a real war, then he must be brave and true. If it's a mental war, he must be black and proud. But if it's, if it's the wake the people up war, Martin Luther King did that. Malcolm X did that. Stokely Carmichael did that. Rap Brown did it. And if people aren't awake, then perhaps the dreams are too good to be disturbed again. Perhaps black people don't want revolution at all. That too must be considered. And I decided to be a writer because people kept asking what would I become. And I couldn't see anywhere to go intellectually and thought I'd take a chance on feeling. I didn't want to get married, buy a five-room house in the suburbs, and have lunch at, a Cap at Caproni's as my big event of the month. I could see becoming a bored, alcoholic social worker with a couple of kids I didn't want by a man I barely spoke to, and wondering at 35 what I'd done with my life. The second greatest thing that happened to me was getting kicked out of Fisk University because I had to deal with my life. I could go back to school, join Delta Sigma Theta, marry a Meharry man, and go quietly insane. Or I could go on to live. And I think I wanted to be famous because my mother deserves to have the world notice her existence. And my family has worked too hard to be ignored. I don't think I would have cared much if it hadn't been for them, but they deserve more. Other people put a lot of time and energy into me, and they, de and they deserve something too. And love means nothing unless we are willing to be responsible for those who love us, as well as those whom we love. People don't just love you out of the blue, you let them. And people have loved me when I needed to be loved. So as an adult, I must give some of that love back to those who want it, or it would have all have been for nothing. I think I'm no different from any other colored girl who has to grow up and make, de and make decisions and live by them. I think we are all capable of tremendous beauty once we decide we are beautiful, or of giving a lot of love once we understand love is possible, and of making the world over in that image if we choose to. I really like to think a black, beautiful, loving world is possible. I really do, I think. Thank you very much. I was born in the Congo. I walked to the Fertile Crescent and built the Sphinx. I designed a pyramid so tough that a star that only glows every 100 years falls into the center giving divine, perfect light. I am bad. I sat on the throne drinking nectar with a lot. I got hot and sent an ice age to Europe to cool my thirst. My oldest daughter is Nefertiti. The tears from my birth pains created the Nile. I am a beautiful woman. I gazed on the forest and burned out the Sahara Desert. With a packet of goat's meat and a change of clothes, I crossed it in two hours. I am a gazelle, so swift, so swift, you can't catch me. For a birthday present when he was three, I gave my son Hannibal an elephant. He gave me Rome for Mother's Day. My strength flows ever on. My son Noah built new ark, and I stood proudly at the helm as we sailed on a soft summer day. I turned myself into myself and was Jesus. Men intoned my loving name. All praises, all praises. I am the one who would say. 
I sow diamonds in my backyard. My bowels deliver uranium. The filings from my fingernails are semi-precious jewels. On a trip north, I caught a cold and blew my nose, giving oil to the Arab world. I am so hip, even my errors are correct. I sailed west to reach east and had to round off the earth as I went. The hair from my head thinned and gold was laid across three continents. I am so perfect, so divine, so ethereal, so surreal. I cannot be comprehended except by my permission. I mean, I can fly like a bird in the sky. When I was a little girl in Indianapolis sitting on doctor's porches with post-on pre-debs, wondering would my aunt drag me to church Sunday, I was meaningless, and I wondered if life would give me a chance to mean. I found a new life in the withdrawal from all things not like my image. When I was a teenager, I used to sit on, on front porch steps conversing the gym teacher's son with embryonic eyes about the essential essence of the universe, recognizing the basic powerlessness of me. But then I went to college where I learned that just because everything I was was unreal, I could be real, and not just real through withdrawal into emotional crosshairs or colored bourgeois intellectual pretensions, but from involvement with things approaching reality, I could possibly have a life. So catatonic emotions and time-wasting sex games were replaced with functioning commitments to logic and necessity, and the gray area was slowly darkened into a black thing. For a while, progress was made, along with a certain degree of happiness, because I wrote a book and found a love and organized a theater and even gave some lessons, some lectures on black history and began to believe all good people could get together and win without bloodshed. Then Hamishko was killed, and Lumumba was killed, and Diem was killed, and Kennedy was killed, and Malcolm was killed, and Evers was killed, and Swerner, Cheney, and Goodman were killed, and Luizio was killed, and Stokely fled the country, and Leroy was arrested, and Rapp was arrested, and Polar, Thompson, and Cooper were killed, and King was killed, and Kennedy was killed, and sometimes I wonder why I didn't become a debutante, sitting on doctor's porches, going to church all the time, wondering, is my eye makeup on straight? Or withdrawn, discoursing on the stars and the moon, instead of a for real black person who must now feel and inflict pain.
you try to plant something in the concrete, you know what I mean? If it grow, and the, and the rose petal got all kind of scratches and marks, you're not going to say, damn, look at all the scratches and marks on the rose that grew from the concrete. You're going to be like, damn, a rose grew from the concrete? Same thing with me, you know what I mean? I grew out of all this instead of saying, damn, he did this, he did this, just like, damn, he grew out of that, he came out of that. That's what they should see, you know what I mean? All the time to survive and make good, out of the dirt, nasty. Diallo Show, Q4 Radio, AM 1680, and that was Nikki Giovanni. We started our morning off with a series of uh, Nikki Giovanni. Oh, give me one, less than a second. I just need to adjust something. Wolande, Wolande. You try to plant something in the concrete, you know what I mean? If it grow... And the, and the rose petal got all kind of scratches and marks. You're not going to say, damn, look at all the scratches and marks on the rose. All right, back already. Less time than I thought it would take. Anyway, this is Bro Diallo Show, Q4 Radio, AM 1680. Tune in app, iTunes Radio, and of course, Q4.org. Always archived at DialloKenyatta.com. And your opportunity to become a direct supporter of the show at Diallo Kenyatta at Patreon.com. Today is March 11th in the year of your Lord, 2020. And I am, all, as always, broadcasting straight out of the city of Chirac, State of Illinois, in the United States of America, the heart of the modern European empire. We started our morning off with the uh, poetess, Nikki Giovanni, 
some spoken word and rhythmic pieces. Uh, started off with Gemini, followed that up by Ego Trippin' and her uh, collaboration she did with uh, Tupac Shakur, um, The Rose That Grew From Concrete. And, you know, I don't know if this trivia matters to you, but uh, Nikki Giovanni actually, after Tupac was murdered, um, went out and got a thug life tattoo. So I don't know what we're going to do with that information, but she does have a thug life tattoo. I had an opportunity to actually see her perform way back when in the uh, early 90s, actually, um, uh, some spoken word pieces in, in New York City. I don't know if it was a Billy Holiday Theater or Brooklyn um, Museum, but I saw her. No, I saw Sonia Ch- Sanchez. I might play some of her stuff uh, in the near future. Sonia Sanchez, I saw her perform at um, Brooklyn uh, Museum. So it must have been the Billy Holiday Theater after they refurbished it. That's also where I first saw Dick Gregory live after he came out of retirement uh, way back, what, 91, 92, way back in the day when I was young. I'm not a kid anymore, but sometimes I really wish I was a kid again. But moving on, um, I'm not talking about that GD primary. And I really sometimes, not every day, not every day, um, I, I find myself lamenting the fact that I can't cuss because I'm not as articulate um, as I need to be um, or as I should be. Lord knows I've had enough formal schooling where I should have a, a, a well uh, enough developed vocabulary where I can express my thoughts and feelings without having to result to cuss words. But I don't. And one, my chairman, when I was a member of the uh, Black United Front, would tell me, you know, he didn't like curse words and he didn't like me cursing. And I said, Brother Ajamu, how do you describe profane conditions and profane realities without using profane words? And um, he said, I don't remember what he said because I was young and I I didn't listen to anybody, I guess. Uh, But I digress. Um, a, a black uh, man, black young man was shot in the back uh, in, uh, last night or yesterday afternoon, actually, on a Tuesday afternoon uh, by a police officer in North Carolina. And uh, the last time we were talking about North Carolina was the very, very, very first state to hand Joe Biden his very first victory in 30 years. Because remember. Joe Biden had ran for president two other times and didn't get anywhere with that. Nobody was willing to vote for Jim Crow Joe. And I don't know why white folks didn't vote for Jim Crow Joe. He fought so hard for segregation. He fought so hard for mass incarceration. He fought so hard to get uh, Clarence Thomas on the Supreme Court. Joe been banging for white folks and breaking his neck for white people his entire political career. And Joe has been one of the most aggressive proponents of the status quo, the status quo of white hegemony, black oppression and global empire and capitalism. And Joe never got his credit. Never. Joe never got the love and credit he was due 
for all the hard work he put in for white folks. But don't despair because for all the earned love that white folks denied him, black folks is making up for giving him unearned love. But anyway, black people handed Joe his first uh, primary victory in over 32 years in North Carolina. And we are reminded, even though we have all this black political clout, this black political influence, we are able to turn election. We are even able within the Democratic Party to defy, defy the will of the white majority, voting majority. The white folks in Iowa, white as white can be, white folks in New Hampshire, white as white could be, said they wanted Bernie. And the black folks said, well, no, boss. We know what's better for you. We sick, boss. Anyway, a black man was murdered, shot in the back over a pizza. Can't cuss. Was shot in the back over a pizza. And uh, that was just a reminder. Regardless of all the political clout you have, ain't a damn thing going to change. And I'm still waiting on Joe Biden to at least symbolically repay the debt, symbolically acknowledge the debt that you owe the black folks in the Carolina and make a public statement. Make a statement, Joe. They are the ones who revived your campaign. They are the ones who put you on the path to getting your ass kicked by Trump because that's what's going to happen, I predict. They're the ones that put you in a, in a position to be humiliated before the nation, just like Hillary's ass was humiliated, losing to an incompetent buffoon. So now you owe Carolina. And how about the majority whip, Jim Clyburn, the powerful, one of the most powerful black politicians in the entire United States, a black kingmaker. What the hell? What say you? And I'm just bro Diallo. I don't have resources. I don't have staff. I don't have a personal assistant. I don't have a secretary. And I don't even have time raising two children. Living impoverished on the south side of Chicago. I don't have the resources that Jim Claiborne or Joe Biden has. So if I know about this, they've been done known about it. All I got is a low power FM station and a Twitter, a Twitter account with less than 2000 followers. So if I can get the information and share the information, I know can't cuss. I know doggone well that Biden knows that Claiborne knows that Obama knows that all these other people know, but they got to wait a week. They got to wait days and days. They got to wait to black people burning stuff in the streets before they come out and make a statement. And Biden doesn't want to make a statement because even though I promise you the 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 policeman's benevolent association, the policeman's union and the average white cop in North Carolina is a Republican. I promise you that that North Carolina is going to go to Trump. He's on the side of the cops. He stands with the fascist. So black folks, here we stand. 
We got the political clout to move mountains. We got the political clout to turn elections. We got the political clout to crown or uncrown the leader of the second most popular political party. Actually, it's not true. When you look at who's elected, the Republicans hold more elected seats, but actually Democrats have more raw numbers. But the United States is a democracy founded by rapists, founded by enslavers, founded by colonizers, founded by genocidal maniacs. So, you know, they weren't go- it's not going to be the best democracy money can buy. In fact, oh, I, maybe I can't because Greg Palace literally wrote a book called The Best Democracy Money Can Buy. But even for for your money, this is not a very good democracy. It's not a very democratic democracy, but it's the democracy that has guns and nuclear weapons pointed at all of our temples. And I know that there are some black people that like to act by they think there's power through denial. I don't care about the government. And they think they can just deny like denying the power, denying the influence, denying the fact that we are subject to this system, that we are under the thralls of this system, and the very system that oppressed us is the same system we depend on for our survival. They think they can just denounce and deny all that, but I guess if you can deny what's real, it's the same type of mental energy y'all use to make what is unreal real. I.e. gods, goddesses, whatever y'all want to believe in. But anyway, I digress. Black people have the power to crown the king of the most populous, most popular political party in the most powerful nation in the world. And we can still be shot down in the street like dogs. And the very people we put the crown upon their heads don't even step up. Now, I know some empty statement is going to be made about let's give it time. Let's get justice. They're going to give some vacuous statement because they want to appease black people and they want to still want to carry the favor of the armed fascists that protect their wealth, that maintain the status quo. So how do you speak to calm the people who are victims of the police while still carrying the favor of police? Give it a little time. It might take it might by the end of the day or he might say nothing, depending on what his advisors tell him. We already know where his heart stands. He stands with the police. Him, just like Hillary Clinton, Biden thinks we're super predators. And let me tell you something. I will never, ever vote for Joe Biden. I do not vote out of fear. I do not vote for who's going to win. I do not vote party loyalty because I have no loyalty to any political party because no political party has demonstrated loyalty to me. The only thing I ever vote for and will ever vote for are platforms and policies. If you can put a viable platform before me that is consistent with my own separate agenda, I will vote. If you put a platform before me that I don't support and I don't give a damn if you're running against Satan, him or herself. I don't give a damn. You're not going to get me to vote out of fear. So if I and people are like, well, we got it. That blue, no matter who, I can't believe some damn fool came on me talking about vote blue, no matter who. 
But again, I can't cuss. I'll just cuss on my way home because I got a lot of cuss. Some brother, brother, had the nerve to come tell me vote blue know how to who. What kind of fool is you? Hell to the non. Hell no. I ain't even voting for Bernie. I'm voting for Bernie's platform. I don't play like that. And that's what the Democrats are trying to do. They've been coercing black votes out of fear. You want the white boogeyman from the Republican to get you? In reality, Trump, Biden, and even Obama all have the same platform. The only difference is their rhetoric and tone and style. Obama, everybody said, got mad at, and I could go policy by policy, but just one. They say, well, Trump, my most important, the most important policy issue to me that matters more than anything else is global warming, climate change. Obama and Biden had eight cotton-picking years, eight blood clot years to reduce or to fix carbon emissions. They didn't. Every single year following Obama's initial election, carbon emissions went up, ecosystems were in recession, uh, extinction, uh, endangerment of animals, uh, destruction of biodiversities, encroachment into preserved waters and preserved lands by polluting industries all went up under Obama. So Obama will come on the TV and say, I care about the environment. We're going to do something about our future, about our children's future. We're going to. And Obama, the same time he was on the tell live vision talking about global warming is real. I accept the science of global warming. Climate change is real and is a threat. At the same bumbaclot time, he was in our faces telling us that he was sitting down with the oil companies. He was sitting down with the automotive industry. He was sitting down with coal companies. He was sitting down with shipping companies. He was sitting down with the airline industry and all these other highly polluting global warming climate change industries negotiating means and methods to keep them not only in business, but make sure their profits were fully maximized. Obama, with his deep sea drilling, offshore deep sea drilling, destroyed one of the last remaining, most uh, largest uh, 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 um, marine ecosystems with several endangered species of plants and animals in the Gulf of Mexico. Y'all don't remember the weeks and weeks and weeks of thousands of gallons of toxic sludge and oil spilling into the Gulf of Mexico because Obama allowed for deep sea drilling and there was no way to cap that well. No real action taken. Y'all done forgot about Obama's lack of help. The Japanese government cover up the Fukushima nuclear meltdown Two confirmed where there's three suspected nuclear meltdowns in, in Fukushima, Japan. And not once have they told us the truth about that. Obama aided in that cover up. 
Oh, they and, and environmentalists said, yo, Obama, you got to stop with the Pacific fishing. The Japanese are literally dumping billions of tons of radioactive water into the Pacific Ocean. And it is reaching as far as it's being taken up into the Gulf Stream. And these heavy toxic particles, alpha particles are being rained down on, on Washington and up and down the West Coast. We're finding uh, fish in the Pacific Ocean. Far from the shore of Japan with lesions, with radio radiation lesions and burns. And Obama suppressed it all. So at the same time, so I'd rather have, and Obama go to, went to Europe and signed the Paris Climate Accords. So the only difference between Obama and Trump, Trump don't give, Trump will get on there and say, I, he don't give a damn. He's like, uh, uh, climate change ain't real. Drill, baby, drill. Now, Obama won't get on the TV and say, drill, baby, drill. Obama will say something like, we're going to keep all energy options on the table. We want energy independence for America. And I'm going to see to it that America does not become dependent on imports. So I'm going to do what I can to develop. That's the hustle. That's the same as saying, screw the environment, screw your children and their lungs and their very ability to live on this planet for profit. And on down the line, Obama was 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 cre not only mm, Obama wasn't just abusing refugees, deporting refugees to be killed, detaining refugees, separating and Obama the cages. Trump didn't build them cages. Trump didn't build them concentration camps. Obama did. Trump is just like Obama gets gets clout by suppressing the truth of racism and Trump gets clout by exposing it. And it kind of saddens me that there are black people who really think that Joe Biden is a viable option against Trump. What is he going to do less? Is he going to stop the drone bombing? Is he going to really rescue the climate? Is he going to go to North Carolina, the place that crowned him king of the Democrats? And speak up for the very people who put him in the office, black voters. I can't cuss. I, I can't, boy. This AM FCC stuff, man, I, 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 I mean, it's limiting. But I digress. More on that later. So black folks, and let me tell y'all something else about this, because we kind of get things confused when we're marching in the street for a dead person. Whether you go back to chattel slavery, you go back to Jim Crow, or you come up to today with Alexander calls the new Jim Crow. A dead black body ain't got nothing to do with the dead person. They didn't tear the hide of the slave and, and string him up or draw and quarter a black man or put him on a pike or murder a black man in the field, a, an insubordinate black man who was enslaved or an insubordinate black woman, a rebellious black woman. They didn't murder them and they would sometimes leave the body in the field and say, you can't recover the body. Even now, like in places like Iraq and Somalia, American snipers will kill a, uh, an African, kill an Arab. 
and then shoot at anybody that comes to recover the body because they want the body to stay there. It's not for the dead body. That person is gone. Regardless of what you believe happens, whether it's oblivion or you go on to paradise or you burn in hell, that person is dead. None of what's going on here matters to them anymore. They leave the body there as a message to the living. When the police murder one of our children, it's not about the child that is murdered as much as communicating something to the children who survive. We tend to miss that. You don't march for the dead. You bury the dead. You don't riot or rebel for the dead. You bury the dead. You don't campaign for the dead. You bury the dead. Ain't nothing you can do. Everything you do after somebody is murdered by this oppressive genocidal system, every step, everything after they breathe their last breath, if they're still alive, And I'm sorry, I'm, I mean, let me not confuse, not that the brother who's there, if somebody is, if the person who was shot, because the young man in North Carolina is actually alive. The initial report said that he was dead. That's because the police were harassing the people around, not allowing them to, to get to him. So the initial social media report said they shot and killed, but they actually shot, attempted, it's attempted murder. But anyway, my point still stands. If someone is still alive, you give them the CPR, you get the tourniquet, you do everything to preserve their life. But after they're gone, all the actions you take for justice is not justice. You can't get justice for a dead man. You can only get justice. And I know some of y'all like to believe that. These memorials, Emmett Till memorials and, and, and apologizing for slavery and all that. Whatever, if that floats your boat, so be it. Some of y'all believe in the afterlife and think that Dr. King can look down and look at the U.S. government, apologize for shooting him in the throat. And that somehow matters to, to the deceased Dr. King. That is not how it works. And I'm sorry, and I know all your life you've been told what you believe should be respected. I don't respect beliefs. You need something else. You need some corroborating supports for your belief and it doesn't even have to be evidence if you can have a rational argument as to why you believe something that there is little evidence for i'm willing to run with a rational argument now if you want me to respect your beliefs you can come with a rational argument for why you hold that belief but if you want me to follow your belief if you want me to embrace your belief if you want me to make some type of adjustment in my behavior Based on your belief, that's when you got to come with concrete evidence. You know, that's when you got to come with concrete evidence. If you say, I believe the children are the future, I'm not, I'm, you know, but that's how I operate. But my point, ultimate point is, these white people kill us, whether it's leaving a, a rotting corpse in the slave field or coming out to the slave shack. And they, they would murder a rebellious slave or capture a runaway slave and put his body on display. When there was a slave rebellion in Louisiana, they put all the slaves who, who rebelled heads on pikes and put those spikes in the ground leading into the main city and left them there. When they'd lynch a black body, white folks would spend all night in ecstasy, drinking moonshine and torturing the black bodies. And then the next morning when black folks are going out to their sharecropper field, they see the body on display swinging from a tree or buried 
up to their neck. And they would tell black people, don't you take that body. I dare you. You bet not take that body down. When they shot Mike Brown and they left his body on the asphalt in Ferguson, Missouri for hours and hours and hours. When they shot this brother in Riley, North Carolina, and they put out the police tape and they start cursing at black people who come and say, what's going on? What happened? And they threatened our people. Get back. Get your ass back. Get back. With murderous rage. When they ain't got nothing to be mad about. They mad at black people for giving a damn about other black people. That enraged them. How dare you question my authority? How dare you act like a human being? When I tell you you're subhuman, that is for us. They kill us to send a message to the rest of us. So at North Carolina didn't even get to celebrate a full week. It was six days after they put Joe Biden in front. Six days. Didn't even get a full week to enjoy their title, their accolades as kingmakers. The cops are like, let us remind you who run things. And even if you put the president, the president can owe you his a debt, a political debt, and it don't matter. Nothing can save you. That's what that communicates. Remember, after we elected Obama, there was an increase of racialized attacks because white folks wanted to remind us you can put a black man in our office all you want. And every time there's some grand symbolic I'm not even saying real. Every time there's a symbolic display of black achievement, of black excellence, of black power, white folks start to attack us, to remind us, don't let it go to your head. My wife been singing that song for the last week. That brand Nubian song, don't let it go to your head, no, no, no. The status quo will not change. So even if you put a black man in a position of power, that black man is going to serve and work within the status quo. Even if the white man who's in power owes his power to you, he's going to preserve the status quo. Moving on. It's an interesting story. Let's 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 try to big up. Um on the 10th, again, yesterday, there was a rare finding on the continent of Africa. There was a uh, that about 85, 85-foot-deep 85 cave that was used as a ceremonial burial ground in medieval Africa. And they found in this cave over 30 preserved skeletons of our African ancestors, over 500 metal artifacts, and they found other interesting things like pierced teeth of jaguars and hyena that had been formed into jewelry and other sculptures. And it was um, one of the most phenomenal archaeological finds on the continent of Africa in the last several decades. Now, there's something about African soil. You know, when they go into certain places like Peltdown Man or the Ice Man, you go to Europe. Or you go to uh, um, Asia and even parts of the Americas, the climate, the Arctic climate, you know, the higher elevations and the, the, the sub 
the Mediterranean and Arctic climates tend to preserve things a little better, fossils and artifacts. Whereas Africa, the more tropical climate, uh, certain parts of Southeast Asia, India, um, um, South America, the climate is very different. So even though Africans have built great monuments, a lot of times the biological elements due to the uh, acidic nature of the soil, they don't preserve. So you very rarely, unless the Africans made a direct, deliberate effort to mummify the bodies, unless there is some type of preservation ritual from that culture, when they just bury the bodies, they don't tend to preserve or even allow the remains to become fossilized. Everything fully returns to the soil. So it's it's quite rare that they find, like, intact skeletons, especially in that region of uh, sub-Saharan Africa. Because it's very rare. It's not lost, and it's very rare. And since that region, Central, North Africa, has spent literally centuries being raided uh, artifacts all over. You know, you go to the Brooklyn Museum, and they've got so many African artifacts. And at the same time, you feel looking at in awe of, of, of the great um, artifacts from our ancestors, from African antiquity, you still, at least I also am enraged. I am enraged at the fact that what is it doing here? Why aren't these artifacts in Senegal? You know, why aren't they in Gambia? Why aren't they in Ghana? Why aren't they in Chad? That's where they come from. What are they doing here? And can I go to Chad and see, you know, a copy of the U.S. Constitution? Can I go to Chad and see, I don't know, uh, Abraham Lincoln's top hat on display with the bullet hole in it? So we, you got our artifacts here. Do Does America allow other nations to have their sacred artifacts or historical uh, artifacts? But I digress. This is interesting. Um, and, it, and I guess, you know, Bro Diallo can't have good news because we're going to learn a lot. You, from, from the skeletal remains, you can learn about diet diseases of even the climate you know so you can learn a lot about the day-to-day life of our ancestors in medieval pre-colonial Africa which I'm always interested you know as wise intelligence said even in school they telling me my history starts in slavery and then we got a whole movement of black folks trying to ground us in slavery as if that's who we are and that's our core identity but I've always been so interested in pre-colonial Africa, who we were when we was us, outside of the context of white oppression. So, anyway, but who knows we'll get the truth, because actually, the expedition into to, to this uh, burial cave in Gabon from the 14th century, um, it's financed by two entities. Number one, the French government, that colonized Gabon. And then, you know, curiously, there is a huge Singaporean uh, palm oil corporations that extract agricultural goods that that runs agricultural companies, a colonial company called um, Olam International. That finance. So you got this huge extractive neo-colonial multinational corporation that is financing the archaeologists who are excavating the site. So even though I'm saying I'm following the story, you know, uh, you can go to uh, archaeology.org and uh, look up 
at if you want to keep up with this story, they've they've been covering it. Like I said, the news only came out yesterday of the fine, so um, they were one of the sites that broke the news. Or you can go uh, Google Gabon uh, burial cave. But I want to follow the story just to find out more because it's very curious to me. But again, it's Singaporean multinational corporations and the French uh, neo-colonial system that is putting up the money. And when you, you know, he who pays the piper names the tune. So if there are certain discoveries that may compromise corporate interest or the European colonial historical narrative, we might never get the truth. And that's the reason why when people are like, I'm not with all that talking, I'm not with all that book reading, I'm about action. Scholarship as is, is as important to our liberation struggle as armed struggle, uprising, militant fist pumping. In fact, I say revolution is a scholarly and intellectual endeavor above everything else. But I, continuing on, I, I tried to make that some good news. I don't know. But hey, even if, hey, if, if hey, there's, a, there's, a, there's a, what do they say? A, a sunny, a silver lining to every cloud and every sun ray. There's a bit of ionizing radiation. So there's good and bad and bad and good, damn it. Uh, I want to talk about, you know, this is just for you. If you ain't got at least $2 million in the bank, you ain't got to listen to this. Now I want to talk to y'all. I'm going to say y'all rich niggas. They, I just saw that they're about to do a Madam CJ Walker series in, uh, on, on, um, Netflix. Who got rich off of exploiting the long decades of self-hate. Can I say that? The straightening comb. Madam C.J. Walker made the straightening comb. But you won't know this if you weren't shown. Boy, I'm telling you. Hair straightening products. First self-made black millionaire in the United States from helping black folks get hair like white folks. Never fails. But I got to stop it. Because y'all see her as a hero. But anyway. So black folks been been secure in the bag even before Madam C.J. Walker. There were literally black people who went through the process of meritorious manumission during the height of chattel slavery. In the uh, late 1700s, early 1800s, decades, generations before slavery was abolished in the United States. Chattel slavery, you got to say, because, you know. There's all kinds of slavery, and white folks ain't never gave up. They got to have some feudal slavery, chattel slavery, wage slavery. They're going to have them some slavery. That's just their culture, dating back to their earliest formal civilizations, the Greeks. But I digress. White folks. Wait, black folks. I don't know. I said millionaire. If you ain't got $2 million in the bank, I'm not talking to you right now. Now, you, you rich black folks. Uh... Y'all have a long lineage of black people living under the worst conditions and still making something of yourself, striving. Strivers row, black excellence, hashtag, long before it was a hashtag, long before the telephone. Like I said, there were black, wealthy black plantation owners and wealthy black plantation owners bought them some black slaves and did everything the white plantation owners do, except they were never really fully part of the system. But well, let's just go back. They're about to put out this Madam C.J. Walker. There was this other black capitalist woman who had her products in in um, 
target and she's and white folks tried to go at her throat tried to destroy her company for no reason she didn't even do anything she made a commercial where she said she wants to inspire black girls now you got a black business owner a wealthy black female business owner in 2020 talking that same stuff that madam cj walker had to talk 100 years ago if i make it now i paved the way and i always say why when are we going to have to stop paving the way for future you know bill gates didn't say well i'm into technology to pave the way for little white boys why do black people after 100 years still pave the way but you go back to the archives i already talked about that but there's something else i want to talk about we've had a slew a concentrated incident meek mill just came out who's worth $25 million and said that he was racially profiled. Meek Mill was on his private jet on his private jet. And he was flying to, I think Puerto Rico or Jamaica coming from uh, North and he stopped for refueling in Florida. And when he stopped for refueling, the cops, TSA, bunch of pigs ran up on his plane. And now, you know, we used to getting splayed out over the hood of our cars or made to sit on the curb in handcuffs while the cops go through our cars. But Meek Mill had to sit on the runway. They had him laid out across his wing on his plane. And he went to social media talking about, I was racially profiled, ooga boo boo hoo Man worth $25 million. And I saw a tape where Meek Mill said he ain't giving nothing to nobody. It's his money. He earned it. And it was all his. And don't ask him for nothing. Just I'm like the, the late tragic Kobe Bryant said, I ain't giving nothing to my family. Y'all niggas could starve. This is my money. But as soon as these rich black people who claim they ain't got no obligation to the masses, who claim they have surpassed us, that they live and found that it's all about the, it ain't about the black or the white. It's all about the green. The soon as they get their nigga wake-up call, they want to start talking. Even Bill Cosby, who said that racism was a figment of black people's imagination and that all black problems originate from the black community or sustain black community and are the fault of the black community, and it's all on us, and we making more trouble for white folks than white folks ever made for us. But as soon as one of these rich niggas got a problem and they get smacked and slay, oh, Mr. Nigger, Go back if bro, I can't play it on the show because it's too profound, too profane and profound. Mr. Nigger by Mos Def. Mr. Nigger. Nigga, I don't like that song because of the message, but there's some accurate assessments about what it means to be a black person in first class. He was complaining about this album is 20 years old. He was complaining about being treated like a no good nigga in first class. And let me tell you, people like Meek Mill don't give a damn about how the rest of us are treated. It's like when Nipsey Hussle got shot. They were like, Nipsey was a millionaire. He ain't supposed to get shot like a regular nigga. On the same day Nipsey got shot, six other black people in that same area were shot. But them was what niggas didn't have a white man's stamp of approval. And it ain't just Meek. Remember, they ran up in Lil Wayne's plane. Lil Wayne is worth $120 million. And they ran up on his plane. Like I said, they racially profiling. You black, you rich, you famous, and you still get just like me and my old late model Ford that I'm holding together with duct tape, my little old car. I can get pulled over. 
and get treated just like Mick Mill get his plane, his private jet, Mr. Nigger. That's my aunt told me. I have a wealthy aunt. And she said, no, it's for niggas. And they're going to remind you of your place. And remember, Juice World is dead for the same racial profiling. Juice World was only worth, what, a couple of million, but he was only 21. No, he was worth actually four million, but he was only 21. So he was on his way to millions. He had already got the fame. He had the white girls. And he had a, and he was about to get the money, everything. As Paul Mooney said, a nigger dream in America. And I know I'm throwing this being reckless with the N-word, but I mean, it is what it is. This ain't my nomenclature. This ain't my assessment. This is the reality that they made for us. And I don't know. So Meek Mill got the same stress, the same psychological insult. But he gets to go. I'm sure he, after they said, okay, boy, get back on the plane. And he got on that plane, saw all his stuff through it. I don't know if you ever had the black experience of having the police ruffle through your stuff. Violate your human and constitutional rights. So he got to get on his private jet, see all his stuff ruffled through, all his Gucci, Louis, Fendi baggage gone through. And I'm sure before the police came on that plane, they were just reveling in all that wealth and opulence. And then you get back on the plane. It happened to me. Me and my homies, we sitting in a car. I, I got too many. I don't even know which experience I should talk about. One time my friends and I were out. And we stopped at a, uh, hanging out one night. We stopped at a store. We go in the store, buy our goods, come out. We're surrounded by cops. Lights flashing, guns out. And, and, and the person in the, in the uh, what was it, a 7-Eleven or a quick trip had pushed the alarm button. And they went through all our pockets, threatened us, went through the car. My man Bo was driving. And we were like, what, what's the deal? And they said the reason why the police were called is because the parking lot was empty and we parked very far away from the door. And, they, and, the, and the police didn't understand why we didn't park closer to the door. Why would we park two or three, four spaces away from the door and walk up to the door? So that made it look like we were up to no good. Because any good American, any honest person would park right next to the door. So they maybe thought we wanted to go in and rob the place and we didn't want the attendant to see the car or describe the car. So we parked away from the door and then walk up. I don't know what, but, but I don't have a criminal mind. I don't have the mind of a degenerate, so I can't think like a degenerate. There was another time we were in a neighborhood in during dusk and we got pulled over, cops drawn, all, everybody pulled out the car, handcuffs. And the cops said, I, uh, after establishing, figuring out he just didn't feel like killing some black boys that night, gave us a warning, no warrants, no drugs, no alcohol. We were the, we were the nerd, we were the neutrons, we were the nerdy kids, we were the, 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 the progressive positive black youth doing everything the society told us we were supposed to do drink the milk stay in school say our prayers say our milk drink our prayers stay in say no to drugs whatever the slogans were back in the 90s and he said well i saw you guys slow down at a green light and we're like, oh, we slowed down at a green light because we're visiting someone. We haven't been here before. So we slowed down to look at the numbers of the, on the address 
of the house. It was like, well, normally I see people when they see a green, when they have the right of way, they, they accelerate. They don't slow down. It's like, well, there were no cars behind us. Did we in any way? Well, I'm just saying, watch yourself. So, I mean, I've got so many of these in my mind vice that I remember. I got so many stories, so many times in here. And I ain't even done crime. I didn't even get the pleasure of crime for all the, the police interaction. But I'm sure back then, if you had asked 15, 16, 17-year-old bro Diallo, man, imagine if you had $100 million in your own private jet. I wouldn't have to deal with this. <laughs> Joke's on you, Jack. And I was just reading about uh, this this famous wealthy comedian was talking about gave advice on to black people on how to survive until you made enough money to get out the ghetto. And I got a secret to you, all you rich black people on your private jets, Meek Mill, talking about you were racially profiled, discriminatory. I got a secret. The ghetto is not a building. The ghetto is not a neighborhood or a block. The ghetto is your skin. <laughs> and even if you manage to get out of the ghetto of your skin like Michael Jackson, if they got you on record as being formerly black, you, you still can't escape it. And to be honest, if I'm really being honest, if I'm really being metaphysical, the ghetto exists in the minds of the white man. He's the one who conceive of and thinks of the ghetto. So unless you could deal with what's going on him. So as long as he has the power over you, as long as the fa his his genocidal rapist forefathers faces on the currency and we allow them to have the power and the authority, we can't escape the ghetto because we can't escape their minds or their being under their foot. But that might be a little too complex. And a lot of y'all are so keen on escapism. If I tell you the ghetto actually exists in the mind of the white man, and I got proof of it because go back to Europe before there were any white folks, any, before there were any black folks around, white folks still had ghettos and slums and tenements. You know, what no black people in Germany, there was, but, you know, for sake of brevity. There were no black people in Germany, but they had ghettos and the Jews were in the ghettos. So white folks make ghettos and slums everywhere they go, from Brazil to Scotland and everywhere in between. But I digress. So anyway, ain't no amount of money going to get you out the ghetto. The only thing that can get you out the ghetto, not working hard, not studying, not getting your degree, not keeping your credit score up and not buying a nice house. I know black folks right now. And then you want to take your go live in these wealthy white neighborhoods or go live in these wealthy white spaces and then send your child to the best white school. And they, yeah, they might have few of they not ducking bullets and trying to navigate gang territory like my son. But psychologically. I mean, how many more crazy, rich, white, black kids we going to have to look at? Out there insane, out there damn minds. And in our efforts to save our children's lives, and we destroy their minds. So this get out the ghetto thing ain't the thing. But uh, some of us will say, I'll take it. I'd rather be laid out across the, 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 the wing of a private jet than being laid over the hood of an old raggedy car. And if that's your fate, so be it. And if you choose that and you say, screw everybody, I'm going to get my money and I'd rather have my private jet search than my broke down Ford, then when it happens, shut the blood clot up about us and Bruce and my people because you ain't with us. You, If you want to be individualistic, be the individual in your prosperity. Be individualistic in your suffering. 
If you want to be elite in your prosperity, be elite and alone in your suffering too. I don't want to hear it. I don't give a damn. And y- but, but that's just me. I just wish the rest of black folks, okay, black people who, who have less than $2 million come back. Let me tell y'all. I wish the rest of y'all would figure this out and stop rallying behind these black people who don't stand with us. If we can't rise with you, you can't stand with us and we won't stand with you. There should be protocols in place. So I don't give a damn about Meek Mill. I don't care if they they uh pull him over at every airport he, he lands his private jet in. Real talk, but this is me. I don't give a damn if they shoot it out of the sky. I need some solidarity. I ain't saying you can't have a private jet. I'm saying, what is your ideology? Where do you stand on the issues pertaining to African people and how to use your time, talent, and resources to make a positive contribution to the just aspirations of African people? And if I can get an affirmative action to that question, then I'll be out there like, yeah, right on, leave that man jet alone. But right now, I'm like, screw you and your jet. But I know some of y'all fall for the okie doke. Y'all looking at Jay-Z and (laughs) some of y'all falling, but I mean, I guess some of y'all really do believe that Rockefeller Enterprises, Inc., and, and Meek Mill and Yo Gotti and Jay-Z. <sighs> okay, I guess. You know, I digress. But that's just my standard. But at least it shows to get out the ghetto fallacy. You can't buy your way out of oppression. You can't private jet fly your way out of oppression. We need revolution. And all these talented, wealthy black folks need to understand they are not exempt. And my last word on this, you go back and study the Holocaust. Go back and read books like The Drowned and The Saved. Go read books by people like Primo Levi. And they talk about, or forget, if you don't want to read those books, the Zionist propaganda, go look at Zionist, go look at the movies. Go look at uh, the The Pianist, which was a damn good movie just for visually stunning. Go look at The Pianist or go look at Schindler's List. And they will show you that when Germany, which was one of the most progressive, integrative, technologically advanced societies. Now, and and it's ironic. I mean, it's really an interesting history to show you how things can flip. The most anti-Semitic nation in Europe at that time was probably France. The mo- and, and shoot, even the, the number one enemies of the, 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 the Nazis, the nation that actually defeated the Nazis, the Russia, the Russian Empire, was already massacring Jews long before Hitler ever came when he was a private in the, in the German army during World War I. They were already massacring Jews. So it was genuinely a shock to anybody around at that time that if you ask somebody, living in the 1920s and say a decade from now, one of nations of Europe are going to rise up and kill off all and attempt to kill all their Jews. Germany would have been at the bottom of your list. If it made the list at all, you would have said great Britain. Hell, you would have said Spain or France before you said Germany. So things can flip. But one of the reasons I'm bringing that up is when the time came, when the nation did flip, there were people in diamond Jews and diamond rings, fur coats being dragged out of mansions. So your money will not protect you from from an insane racist nation. Bro Diallo show. I have a caller. 
please state your name or alias where you're calling from. Hey, this is Scotty. I called a couple of days ago. What's up, bro? Nothing much. Uh, I was just listening, and uh, I don't know if you talked about the um, the Super Tuesday uh, 2 results uh, from last night. Did you? Uh, not really. I just talked about Joe Biden like a dog, but, I mean, the polls are the polls. Oh, yeah, I heard, uh, I heard a little bit, uh, bit of that, but, yeah, um, what I was seeing in the exit polls, at least, is basically, um, is that generational divide, like, there's this big, there's this big, um, narrative going that, yeah, basically, black folks, Save Joe Biden and pretty much erase Sanders' um, uh, Sanders' support among Latinos, which is interesting. And you look at all the issues, they support Sanders, but they vote for Joe Biden. And what it tells me is that the media narrative, especially in the uh, era of Trump, uh, mass uh, mainstream media, MSNBC and CNN and ABC, um, Democratic voters became trust the uh, corporate media more in the age of Trump. And uh, you know, do you see those parallels? Like Democratic voters came to trust like MSNBC more, uh, and then just like uh, Republican voters came to trust Fox News during the Obama years? Um, yeah, and I know black people statistically consume more TV than than the uh-huh. average uh, U.S. citizen, but I think Biden's pure, the only thing he's standing on is his Obama residue. He got a lot of Obama stink on him, and black folks can't get enough of that Obama residue. I think that's the main mm-hmm. thing, what makes him stand out above everyone else. Which is a tragedy, uh, but I think that's the reality. Okay, the last thing I'll say is pretty much, um, and I think it said this a couple of days ago, that there's a lot of people saying that um, part of the reason why Sanders lost is because, well, he didn't have a black agenda. And I'm like, if black folks actually cared about a black agenda, then there are other candidates who did a better job to speaking the issues of uh, black voters outside of Sanders, and yet they went for Joe Biden. I think it's like we've been voting for corporatist candidates for decades because, you know, it's just a way to keep the big bad Republicans out of office. And what I'll say, and I'll end this, normie Democrats are going to end up learning a hard lesson when they're going to ask, young voters and progressive voters to come out and vote for Joe Biden and there ain't going to be there. Right? Um, what, what, wait, which candidate had a black agenda or spoke more to black issues? Which one? Well, there was, uh, Marianne Williamson pretty much ran as a candidate who supported reparations. Um, Elizabeth Warren, she pretended to have, uh, like she, she pretty much mouthed like racial justice rhetoric and um, Julian Castro too, but nobody really had a black agenda, but Sanders seemed to get the uh, short end of the stick of that. Actually, uh, Which, and, uh, 
See, that that's the thing about a black agenda. A black agenda is like Puff the Magic Dragon. It's a it's our imagination. You know. Mm-hmm. And and Yeah. But okay. I was just curious. But basically I think you were right in saying that nobody really had a black agenda. And the and mm-hmm. and the only yeah. thing worse than them not having a black agenda is us us looking to them for a black agenda. That's horrible. That's really mm-hmm. stupid. Yeah, I think I think it was just a way for us to feel like we had some leverage over the Democratic Party. I don't think I think that uh, the whole thing of rep- no reparations, no vote, like that was basically us being the abused spouse of the Democratic Party, trying to make our abuser jealous, which is you know it's a sad reality. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, but you have make some interesting points, but um yeah, that whole black agenda rhetoric is is really stupid. And I actually I I was going to talk about that anyway on um going into that. So, yeah. Okay. I, have, all right. Have a nice day. You make sure you call back, brother. Mm-hmm. All right. Our brother Scotty with with some some mostly accurate views except for the black agenda part. Uh, I I wanted to talk about but I'm running out of time. I wanted to talk about the the market collapse. We've lost 20% of value of of stocks. Oil, 24% of all oil uh has collapsed. Um Damn. Wow. I'm just looking at these numbers. Sorry. Some I blow I'm blowing my own mind over here. I don't even need y'all. I'm blowing my own mind. <laughs> but I I guess we'll have to wait till tomorrow to talk about the oil wars. Today's show topic, believe it or not, is, and I think Scotty provided us a really good segue into the show topic, is reparations and black, and not black, but reparations and political reductionism. Political reductionism is basically when you, when a people takes their entire political agenda and concentrated into one issue. Like you got people who are like abortion voters. And say, well, I'm against abortion. God loves the babies. And if you don't support abortion, you don't get my vote. And you got abortion voters out there. Anti-abortion voters. You got uh, marijuana voters. You literally have people that say, dude, dude, hey, if you're for legalizing marijuana, you got my vote, dude, whatever. So you, the political reductionism is when people really boil down their political views or their political stance to one isolated issue. And they do it to the point where they can't even recognize the interconnectedness of politics. And political reductionism is actually uh, an oxymoron because the very nature of politics means is about coalition building and having an expanded understanding of social and economic relations across a society. That's what politics is. There is no such thing as personal politics or individual politics. If you got just one person on a stranded and stranded on an island unto themselves, there is no political system on that island. You need at least one other person and something to fight over and something to advocate for. One person said, let's cut down the tree. Let's cut down all the trees on the planet. I mean, on the desert, on the deserted island. And we're going to build a bonfire so that the boats passing by can see it. And another person said, no, a bonfire. I'm not with the bonfire agenda. I want to cut down the trees and make a boat. So we can get out of here. 
And so now that's the, those are the two political platforms. But if it's just one person, there's no. So there's no individual or personal politics. My view is if you don't understand how your view of impacts is interrelated to other people, you are a sociopath. And you are not engaged in politics. I don't know what you're doing. So politics are not personal. They're not individual. Even though the politicians like to think is that think it is that way. You're voting and your values and you matter. You don't matter. It's all about me, we, us. So political reductionism is when people try to take this broad concept of politics and reduce it down to a bite-sized pill, bitter pill they can swallow once every two to four years. And that is something when people start to engage in political reduction, two things happen. They lose their standing and they are ripe for manipulation. Like somebody who craps on black people, who violates everything black people stand on. But they get on the stage and say reparations and black folks are pushing the button, breaking their fingers to push the button for this politician. Not understanding what are their relations. They can say, well, I'm going to get black folks reparations by going to colonize Africa and extract resources from Africa. I'm going to go into the Pacific Ocean and mine in this ocean and destroy ecosystems. I'm going to pay, pay black folks reparations by uh, by exploiting prison labor. You know, you like, how do you intend to give us reparations? What are the political, social, cultural implications of, of your method of securing the funds for our liberation? Or our reparations? But when you're only like, no, I vote. If I don't get reparations, I don't even uh, no vote, no reparations, no vote. When they don't even have, and, and so that's political reductionism. Explained probably in an overly complex way, where you reduce your political views or your political agenda down to such a minuscule point that you lose sight of all the other interrelated or interconnected issues. And what often happens there that it it makes you ripe for manipulation and exploitation because all somebody got to do is abracadabra say the magic word and you've got republicans who've been running on abortion and running on the promise abortion been legal since 1973 and they run on rhetoric of abortion and they get in there and what the hell uh i'm voting to protect babies and you ended up think you voting to protect unborn children when you're truly voting to give uh, 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 billions of dollars of tax breaks to the wealthy and run up the deficit by over a trillion. And when you're voting to protect babies and you end up instead of women still getting abortions and babies put in cages on the border. So that's why you always have to take the wider view. Now, when you in your community, when you're working with grassroots organizations, you can say, well, we are a hardcore reparations driven, focus centered movement, grassroots based in the community by foreign of the community. But when you go out to engage the political system, you have to have a broader view. Or your movement will become what is called a fringe movement. And fringe movements are only there for when you got like during the primary season. You'll notice the rhetoric changes when when presidents are running for the nomination. They have a different rhetoric and a different approach than when they're running for a national office. It's all in the game, yo. But moving on. 
there was an article where Charlemagne the God and several other really silly, politically ignorant black folks were talking about said Biden, neither Biden <laughs> or Bernie Sanders have a black agenda. And you know what happens when you want someone from outside your community to have an agenda for you? That's how you get the Holocaust. Hitler had a Jewish agenda. George Washington had a Native American agenda. You don't want anybody to have an agenda for you. That's not how it works. Let me give you a specific example. And I don't know if I, I'll use his name because he's, he's been on the air. The man who put me in this seat, brother by the name of Eon Biddle. I started off in radio co-hosting his show, Zero to 100. And, you know, came to, later after that show was uh, went off the air. I came to do the Bro Diallo show. So the man who hooked me up with Q4 and everything, who's responsible for me being here, before he went into became a radio personality, he was an elected official in Wisconsin. He ran, he campaigned, ran a successful campaign. Very, very, I mean, if you've ever seen those old zero to very, very personable, jolly, big personality, magnetic type dude, unlike me. He's the one that called me the, the Grinch of plant or the Black Power Grinch or the Grinch of Plan Africanism. He's the one that gave me that name. What is going on? Something's wrong with me. He's the one that first called me that. So we go back a little bit, known him for a minute. And he w before he came to radio, he was an elected official. And he ran. He went out and kissed babies. He went out and kissed old lady on the cheeks and kissing little babies on the forehead. He did his son's speech. He went into the grassroots movement. He built a coalition and he got himself elected to office. He said the first day he was in office, one of the elder statesmen came into his office in the state building and said, hey, what's up? You know, Representative Biddle. He was like, hey, and he's like, I got some people I need you to talk to. He was like, fine. And who came in there to talk to him on his first day in office? Was it the ministers? Nope. Was it the, the uh, community activist? Nope. The black community activist? No, it was not. Was it the black business owners? No, it was not. Was it the black celebrities? No, it was not. It was representatives of the Hmong people. Who are the Hmong people, you might ask? There's a movie called Gran Torino by uh, Clint Eastwood. There's a movie called uh, Gran Torino. And in that movie, there's this old white man. Old uh, uh, Clint Eastwood. Clint Eastwood plays the main character. His car gets broken into. And he walks out and it is some Hmong, Hmong people. Break, young Hmong people breaking into his house. And he finds out that his movie, his community was, was, was being, I don't know what you call it, reverse. What's anti-gentrified? The, the minority Hmong people, these Asians were moving in and all the white folks were moving out. But he was a stubborn old mule. And he's like, I'm not moving out of my neighborhood. And they wanted to steal his Grand Torino car. It's an interesting story. But it tells you about the history of the Hmong people. The Hmong people were ethnic minorities in Vietnam. And when the U.S. went to murder and genocide the Vietnam people, the Hmong people fought with the Americans. And so when the Vietnamese successfully won their guerrilla campaign against the imperial, imperial 
uh, French and the Imperial America, the United States brought a lot of Hmong people here to the United States because the Vietnamese, they were saying that the Viet Cong government would extract revenge on these traitors. And if you're a member of the Hmong community, you know, don't get mad at me. That's what's in the books. If I'm wrong, call in. Let me know. But that's the history as far as I know. They were brought to America, right? And the Hmong people, yes, it's, it's spelled H-M-O-N-G, but it's, I've heard it pronounced Hmong or Hmong. Anyway, Asian people. And so these representatives of the Hmong people came in and sat down and said, uh, congratulations on your victory, uh, Representative Biddle. Here's our list. These are our priorities, our values, and our interests. Here you go. And he's looking at them like, I don't know, did any Hmong people vote for me? I haven't seen, I didn't even know I had Hmong people in my district. What the hell is going on here? And the elder statesman looked at Biddle, a, 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 a freshman, a first, a newly elected official, and looked at him dead in the eye and said, boy, you don't want to cross these here, folks. And these people didn't march in the street. They didn't say no Hmong, no vote. They didn't ask Biddle, what is your agenda for our community? They came and slapped an agenda on his table. And they said to him, you work with us, this is how we can reward you. You violate us, this is how we can punish you. Now he said, I didn't even know I had a Hmong community in my district. I didn't campaign in their communities. I didn't make them any promises. I didn't ask for them for nothing. I didn't promise to give them for nothing. But the first people I see, I might have to get Biddle in here to tell you this story itself, were these Hmong people. And that's how politics operates. So you have invisible populations. And I'm not saying they're invisible. We just people you don't know about. You got populations like the Jewish community that represent less than 3% of the overall electoral uh, uh, registered voting population. And you don't see them protesting. You don't see them marching. You don't see them making political threats or promises to the public. No reparation, no vote. What is your black agenda? That's not how it works for people who seek to be in power. Because when you say, what are your empty promises to me? And after you break the promise once, you wait another two years and then demand that they make the promises again and again. Y'all up here asking Bernie for reparations when y'all let Obama get away with eight years without reparations. My wife and I, we have two sons. They are ours. They are people. They're our children. What the blood clot we look like letting our children run around vandalizing, littering and terrorizing the community. But our neighbor's kids, we're going to step to him and be like, boy, we see you out here. Nobody would respect us as parents. They were like, you don't hold your own to the same standard you hold other people's kids to. That nothing can lose you status in the black community than behaving that way. And y'all out here threatening white politicians for something y'all don't even ask of black politicians. What in the blood clot? What the blumber clot is going on here? So black people, what we have to do if we really are serious about securing a black agenda and advancing black interests is sit amongst ourselves and say, this is the black agenda. And I don't give a damn who's in office. Then we mobilize and organize ourselves to reward or sanction, reward or sanction. You get certain political rewards if you hold to and advance these particular agenda points. These points are negotiable. 
We're willing to make concessions. We're willing to delay. We're willing for you to deprioritize this in order to do that. These are our non-negotiables where we will not wait. We will not compromise. And and to to violate these specific points is an act of war against our community. And we will not only move against you. We have a long memory. We have a long, long memory. And once you get on the blacklist, you know getting off it. So you best do everything you can. That's power. Sitting there having millionaire black celebrities talking about Bernie don't have. I don't need Bernie to have a black agenda. I don't need nobody to have a black agenda outside of black people. That's the only people I need to have a black agenda. And once you develop a black agenda, you develop a black plan of action, black protocols. You define what is needed to advance that black agenda, whether it is fiat currency or guns and bullets. It doesn't matter. You make a sober analysis and then you carry it out. Guess what the government doesn't have? You won't find one politician get up and say, well, my Jewish agenda. They don't say my Jewish agenda. Why? Because the Jewish agenda is given to them. They don't sit in their office. You want Bernie to go to his office? Well, I'm going to sit here. Okay, on top of my list, blacks. What am I going to do for the blacks? So, okay, my black agenda is A, B, and C. And then come to us and tell us what he intends to do for us. You want Biden. I'm sure Biden don't say blacks. He probably said the colored. What's my colored agenda? My colored agenda is to pimp your votes and forget you exist for the next four years. We already know his agenda. And if he tell us anything other than that, he's lying. And I know black people think they're being so sophisticated. All these stupid ass black leaders. Charlemagne the God, these ADOS, FBA, what's in it for black folks? What's in it for us is what the blood clot we put in it. We got a whole campaign in Chicago. What's in it for black folks? And then we stand there and wait for them to tell us. What's your black agenda? Then we sit there and wait for them to tell us. Do you know how stupid you look? I'm waiting for you to tell me. And we think that's politics. You don't give me reparations, I don't vote. Why do you want reparations? One of the reasons we want reparations is education. That's what y'all claim. They don't want education. What a lot of these reparations, I call it a cargo cult. Or prosperity politics. Now they say we want reparations for things like education, housing, health care. They say that. Because they don't want to look like the scumbag hustlers that they are. But these ADOS leaders and many of these other prominent Negroes, they want to sit next to Meek Mill on the private jet. That's what they want reparations for. They want to skim the top. And they want to give maybe my son a scholarship, maybe give your your daughter a housing voucher and some other type of uh, thing so they can say. But like just like all these other black leaders, Oprah has an $82 million endowment for her charity. And, and in the last year, she didn't get less than $3 million of that to, to actual help people. I once worked for a charity. I'm not going to say the name. But they spent more time planning their annual ball than they did actually helping people on the ground. And that's why I walked out of there, didn't even give a seven-day notice. I'm like, I can't be a part of this. That was a minute ago. They might have cleaned up their act. Really, they're still around. And I know they got all new administrators, so I don't want to diss this charity because I 
I I would like to think, and based on what I've heard, the people who ran it that way are out. They've, they've got a new board, so I'm not going to name the charity, but what I'm saying is they spent, when I was in that office, I was in a corner running the youth initiatives, and I had one little computer, one little corner, and no money, and the girl who planned the annual ball, her whole job for the whole year was to plan one big party, one for the donors, and this extravagant ball, ice sculptures, celebrities there, athletes and entertainers and and the top black folks from all around the east coast her job was to plan that party secure the space in the most extravagant locations she had more resources to plan a party for the donor than i had to 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 help the people that the 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 not-for-profit was organized to help so when these people talk about they want to help us jay-z oprah Remember, Russell Simmons started his charity and he was going to do repeal the Rockefeller drug laws. And then he got bored with that project and went on to yoga and forgot about us. And brother's still in jail under the Rockefeller drug laws. We are worth more than some celebrity's pet project or tax write-off. So that's what they want it for. But if you say, well, education is an issue. There's a deficit in the quality of schools. And a politician says, I don't support reparations, but I have uh, a uh, debt relief program. I have a free public education program to to, to divest from public-private partnerships, to divest from charter schools and put the money back in the public school system. I have an incentive for 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 breaking up the the media monopolies and the cellular monopolies because you want black people want to get into industries. One of the main things that are stopping anyone from getting into industry is the monopolies. So you have someone who doesn't say the reparations, but a good 30 to 45 percent of the reparations uh, bullet points are addressed by this particular platform. But you, but did he say reparations? No, he didn't say reparations. I'm not voting for him. But damn, even without reparation, this agenda gets you more than halfway there. Oh, did he say reparations? And you'd rather go backwards. And then the person that says reparations and has nothing but regressive policy gets your vote. That's what the kind of things you fall into when you're engaged in political reductionism. When you're not being cold, distant, and calculating in relationship to politics, when you're putting your emotion in it, you get more caught up in symbols than you do in in, in concrete realities. So, what have we learned? (laughs) We don't ask anybody for an agenda. And another thing, if you can't sell the agenda to the black community, how the blumber cloud you going to sell it to a white politician? First of all, you don't ask from outside your community. If somebody came to the black community and say, I have a black agenda, and they're not a member of the black community, and that is for everything from white politicians to wealthy blacks who are outside of our community. Yes, these black elites are not us. Go read Class Struggle in Africa. Go read E. Franklin Frazier's The Black Bourgeoisie. Go read uh, uh, Powernomics. Dirty Little Secrets, Volume 1, 2, and 3. And there's all kind of by Dr. Claude Anderson. There's all this history to say that wealthy blacks stab us in the back. When they, when black people get to a certain uh, status, unless they are conscious, 
unless they are deliberately engaged in class suicide when black people reach a certain level of economic uh, wealth their interest becomes class interest not racial interest they are too far outside the spectrum so if you keep listening to these wealthy blacks and the point of wealthy blacks the black clergy and other black elites has always been to make us subordinate to the status quo so Michael Jordan, as much as y'all love him, stand to lose as much as the average white man if black people are to get liberated because his wealth, just like all other wealth, is built on the exploitation of Africa and other poor and desperate people around the world. There is no ethical consumption under capitalism. There is no righteous billionaire. Nobody has done a billion dollars worth of work. So for you to get a billion dollars, you must be a parasite. And black parasites, believe you me, are just as bloodthirsty as white parasites. If you don't believe me, ask Megan Thee Stallion or Lil Wayne and all these other black folks who uh, signed to black labels and got treated just as bad as when artists James Brown and uh, Little Richard more than half a century ago were signing to, to white or Jewish-owned labels. The exploitation is still there. Go ask all the people who work at Tyler Perry Studios and how he's trying to keep out the union. And he fired his entire writing staff when they did nothing more than say, we want uh, comparable wages in health care. We work. We're making you a billion dollars. Tyler Perry didn't become a billionaire through, ethyl, through uplifting black people. He became a billionaire by exploiting working class black people behind the scene to help him make those god-awful movies. And I'm an atheist, so by the time I'm calling your stuff god-awful. But I digress. If anybody comes to our community saying, here's my agenda for you, you kick them out. You kick them out. You say, get out of my face with that. You take that agenda and you shred it. Nobody brings an agenda to you. Go read uh, Blood in My Eye by George Jackson. You don't let anybody approach you. You go to them. You go to them. You make them meet your terms. You don't accept their terms for you. But again, before you can make the elites, the politicians, the influencers accept your agenda, you got to make sure the people in the community accept your agenda. And you got to know 100% of the community is behind this. But this is more of this issue, and you prioritize your issue based on your level of support. And black people sitting alone not even publishing, not even articulating what their agenda is, not even giving the masses of the black folks the details of the agenda and claim, I represent black folks. Farrakhan goes all over the world swearing up and down he represents black folks. And personally enriching himself in the name of black folks. And y'all, a million on y'all. Y'all didn't march to Washington, D.C. four five times. And I, as I hear through the grapevine, He's going to have y'all behinds in D.C. again next year. A million of y'all. To what end? And you come right back to the same conditions. So as Bobby Wright taught us, a people's power that they can exert externally, and yes, the government is external. The system is external. The, the, the economy is external. It's not ours. We have to navigate it. We are subject to it, but it ain't ours. But Dr. Bobby Wright says the amount of influence and power you have to move things externally is directly proportional to the level of coordination and cooperation you have internally. 
We need a black worldview. We need black social theories. Even if black people got a trillion dollars in reparations tomorrow, if we still had capitalist values, we still had Western values, agendas, and goals, and we out here uh, praising private jets, and we over here buying blood diamonds, we over here and we take that money and invest it in the same white collapsing stock market as white folks have, if we don't have an extractatory agenda, how we can re- remove resources from the system and build up from within and make ourselves, we shouldn't be trying to elevate within the system. We should be trying to insulate ourselves from the system as we work to destroy the system. Because if we do not, all the fiat in the world will do nothing for black people. All the reparations in the world will do nothing for black people except You go from being laid out on the hood of your old Ford to being laid out on the wing of your private jet. But being laid out with a gun to your neck feels pretty much the same. Or maybe I don't know. I've never even written in a private jet, let alone owned one. So maybe it hits different. Maybe oppression, you know, maybe having a boot on your neck with diamond chains all around your neck feels different than having a boot around your neck with some African beads that you bought for a buck. Maybe having your your teeth knocked down your throat by a policeman's flashlights feels different when your teeth are coated in diamonds and gold. I don't know. Maybe being called a nigger in Louboutins hit different being called a nigger in pro wings. I don't know. I don't imagine. I don't aspire to get there. But we need liberation and power. It would be suicidal and absurd For anyone outside of our community to have an agenda for us, stop asking people for our agenda. Stop being so easily manipulated. Stop. Stop investing any of our. Now, every time there's an election, I'm a revolutionary. I have my Trump reelection agenda i have my biden agenda i got my bernie agenda it doesn't matter who gets into office and we need to get there and simply voting and another thing you empty militants i ain't voting voting does not mean that you somebody some idiot told me oh uh i I can't even repeat i can't even imagine the level of stupidity i don't even hold it in my mind some idiot is talking about, well, if you vote, you're giving relevancy, you're giving legitimacy, you're giving power to the system. <laughs> As if, if, well, I'm going to stay home and not vote. And the white man is like, oh, Diallo didn't give us power. Let's get rid of our nukes. Let's call back the aircraft carrier. You know, let's turn off, go to turn off the, the, the Federal Reserve, shut it down. Diallo has taken away his vote. Therefore, we have no legitimacy. Listen, dumbass, this system was here before you were born. It's going to be here more likely than not after you die. And all these things you're telling yourself that you're accomplishing by not voting is self-delusion. And I'm just not with self-delusion. I'd rather deal with an unpleasant truth than the most beautiful uh, delusion in the world. So we have to be realistic. You need a diagnosis. And sometimes when you make a proper diagnosis, the things you have to do to, to cure the problem are very unpleasant. If I get it, so if we diagnose, listen, yes, they have power. No, we're not on the verge of some grand revolution or uprising. Yes, many of our people are embedded and greatly dependent on this system. And I ain't just talking about the wealthy blacks. I'm talking about your grandmother who's got Medicaid or Medicare 
your 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 cousin who is on on a housing voucher your nieces and nephews and own children that go to public schools all of y'all who breathe air and drink water and eat food in the United States deal with government regulators and government inspectors if you're driving a car so simply saying I don't give a damn which merely says I submit the highest form of submission is not voting to give the system legitimacy. The highest level of submission is saying, I'm still going to be a law-abiding citizen, but I'm not going to engage the political process. That is a high level of submission that they're trying to sell as militancy. And no, voting does not mean you're looking to the government to save you or for your Russia, China, Saudi Arabia. All these foreign power entities engage in the U.S. politics seek to manipulate and influence the U.S. political system. Is it for, for liberation? Even the British government, they have whole sectors of their intelligence agencies that do nothing but study and try to understand and predict the, the political climate and to understand and profile the political leaders of the United States. Everybody pays attention. And when given the opportunity, you vote. You don't vote for freedom. You vote because you're you are an engaged, intelligent entity. So even if your agenda is to overthrow the U.S. government, your main focus should be fully. You should be as invested infiltrate. You got the ability to infiltrate. We think white folks are the only people that can infiltrate something. White folks send an agent into a black movement and that black movement, that black agent will be paying his dues on time, show up to every single meeting. And you have an opportunity to influence, engage, and even infiltrate any political party. And you don't take advantage of it because you're too militant. Stop playing with me. I sound like, uh, <laughs> I love when uh, Soldier Boy said, boy, stop playing with me. Don't play with me. <laughs> That's how I feel like Soldier Boy. Don't play, stop playing with me. <laughs> So, by any means necessary, by any and all means necessary, the ballot or the bullet. And if you ain't on bullet yet, don't play with me about the, 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 the ballot. You know, it doesn't say wait for the bullet. It says if you ain't bullet, if you bullet, then you can discard everything I'm saying. If you in bullet mode right now. Right now, in the next 24 hours, if you go in bullet, then forget everything I said about politics. But if you don't plan on yippee ki yay if you don't plan on uh, uh, either doing maximum emergency, compensatory justice, look it up. If you don't know what it is, then I know you ain't about to do it. Or if you ain't got no guerrilla faction or some guerrilla cell that you're about to activate in the next 48 hours or before the next election cycle, then come on over to ballot and let's intelligently do ballot as you prep for your bullet. This is Brody Allen Show, Q4 Radio, AM 1680. You can find us on Q4 on the TuneIn app, iTunes Radio, and of course, Q4.org. That's Q-U-E-4.org. And go browse the site. There are many wonderful, progressive, independent, non-corporate shows on there. A lot of unique music. And you can just holler at the people here at Q4 and tell them that you appreciate them setting up, sustaining, and doing all the work it takes to maintain a low-power FM radio station in the era of media monopoly. 
And if you want to support the Bro Diallo Show, of course, you can make everything from become a Patreon to make a one-time donation. And there'll be other means and methods of, uh, of, of supporting the Bro Diallo Show so that we can keep the show on the air and sustain independent voices, progressive voices in, in the black community. And that being said, uh, I don't have any announcements. But I do need to talk about because I got a call last week and a brother was like, I want to join the revolutionary movement. And I wasn't happy with the answer I gave him. I was extremely disappointed in the answer I gave him. So that is inspiring me to be next time somebody says, I want to join a movement. I can say, come here on this day at this time and you in. And then you can determine how to use your time, labor, resources to make a positive contribution to the just aspiration of the people. Because I know I get discouraged and, and, and exhausted and but you know we got to struggle and we got to win uh, loss is not an option as bro Diallo said back when I was propaganda the poet uh, what did I say it don't matter if we win as long as we fight I, I don't want to live long if I can't live right a little girl in Indianapolis sitting on doctor's porches. We're going to hear a little bit more from uh, Nikki Giovanni, and uh, I will see y'all Friday morning. Be safe, stay warm. And I wonder if life would give me a chance to mean. I found a new life in the withdrawal from all things not like my image. When I was a teenager, I used to sit on, on front porch steps conversing the gym teacher's son with embryonic eyes about the essential essence of the universe, recognizing the basic powerlessness of me. But then I went to college where I learned that just because everything I was was unreal, I could be real, and not just real through withdrawal into emotional crosshairs or colored bourgeois intellectual pretensions, but from involvement with things approaching reality, I could possibly have a life. So catatonic emotions and time-wasting sex games were replaced with functioning commitments to logic and necessity, and the gray area was slowly darkened into a black thing. For a while, progress was made, along with a certain degree of happiness, because I wrote a book and found a love and organized a theater and even gave some lessons, some lectures on black history and began to believe all good people could get together and win without bloodshed. Then Hamishko was killed and Lumumba was killed and Diem was killed and Kennedy was killed and Malcolm was killed and Evers was killed and Swerner, Cheney and Goodman were killed and Luizio was killed, and Stokely fled the country, and Leroy was arrested, and Rapp was arrested, and Polar, Thompson, and Cooper were killed, and King was killed, and Kennedy was killed. And sometimes I wonder why I didn't become a debutante, sitting on doctor's porches, going to church all the time, wondering, is my eye makeup on straight? Or withdrawn, discoursing on the stars and the moon, instead of a for real black person who must now feel and inflict pain. Pintar, si pintas con amor, porque desprecia su color, si se ames que en el cielo. On the wings of a spider spinning slippery daydreams of paper doll fantasies. I built my tower on the beak of a dove, pecking peace to a needing woman. I have built my dreams on the love of a man, holding a nation in his palm, asking me the time of day. 
I have built my castle by the shore, thinking I was an oyster clam shut forever, when this tiny grain I hardly noticed crept inside, and I spit around and spit around and spun a universe inside with a black pearl of immeasurable worth that only I could spin around. I have borne a nation on my heart, and my strength shall not be my undoing, cause this castle didn't crumble, and losing my pearl made me gain, and the dove flew with the olive branch by Harriet's root to my breast, and nestled close and said, you are mine, and I was full and complete while emptying my wounds, and the sea ebbed, oh, what a pretty little baby. (laughs) 